with the two other adult options, uh, the ladies class and the young adults, I made about 60 copies. I think that should cover everybody in the room, so no need to ration. If you want your own copy of tonight's uh, class, you can have that. Um, in uh, this class during the quarter, we are studying the period of the judges. Um, as has been said, most of the period of the judges is going to be covered in the book of Judges. But it's not just the book of Judges. It's Judges and Ruth and then First Samuel uh, all the way up to chapter 8. So it covers a period that, and it depends on how you do your math. Um, if you want to write this on your sheet to help to de- determine the period of the Judges, First Kings chapter 6 and verse 1 and Acts chapter 13 Verse 17 through 20 are two passages of Scripture that kind of lay out for us uh, some markers for the conquest until the coronation of King Saul. So I, I say about 350 years. We won't quibble. You know, it's on the round of about four centuries. And we've done a lot of preparatory work to get to where we are tonight to talk about the first three judges. Uh, and uh, to do that, there's when you look at the book of Judges as a whole, it's really one long illustration, isn't it? What, what is, if you were to try to encapsulate what is being illustrated through this entire period of the judges, what would you say it was? Okay, you see underneath it all the disobedience of the Israelites on a persistent basis. In fact, as we go through the book of Judges, you're going to see a degradation. It's going to deteriorate. It's going to go from bad to worse. All right, disobedience, what else? Okay, so we have different ways to depict that cycle, and we're going to come back to that uh, even in this lesson, where you have God who's been taking care of them. Remember, they've come out of the conquest, and uh, victories were one that they could not have achieved by themselves. They, uh, jo- the book of Joshua is summarized in Joshua 21, 43 through 45. God kept every one of his promises, and as the result of this, this land that God had promised to Abraham is now theirs in totality. They've all settled the tribes in the various places um, where it was appointed for them to be. God's blessed them, and then they forget God. They turn away from God. Uh, we saw that last week. I think Andrew did a, a great job. By the way, speaking of great jobs, Dayton did a fantastic job. That was incredible. Man, we talked about, you know, stand up, speak up, and shut up. And he said, yep, that's where I'm, I'm heading. And he did a, a great job. And the shut up, I think a lot of us preachers uh, would learn a lot from the way he ended that lesson. That was good. Um, but you, you see how they turn away from and they forget God. And God allows an enemy to arise. Uh, and in that... Um, enslavement that follows, they cry out for deliverance, and God sends a deliverer, and they are faithful during the period of time in which that deliverer lives, and then that deliverer dies, and then there's rest. What we're going to see tonight is that it's not something that happens overnight. It's not a matter of the judge uh, dies, the deliverer, the Savior, is, is off the scene, and they immediately fall away. There's a period of rest that often occurs, and it makes it easy for them to, to turn their eyes away from him. So, uh, tonight we look at how that history, that dark and winding road begins to unfold. And I want us just to look at three things in the course of this class tonight. The first thing I want us to notice is what we might call the test that occurs to the children of Israel, and then the deliverance that God brings through Othniel. 
Um, in order to set that up, let's turn in our Bibles to Judges chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse 1 through 11. And by the way, what is the summary statement of the period of the Judges? Alright, do you want to put this somewhere on your sheet? We'll come back to this probably several times. Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25 are the bookends in which that statement is made uh, that every man did what was right in his own eyes and in between some of the most reprehensible, deplorable uh, behavior in the entire Bible. It even involves a Levitical priest. Um, unfolds, it plays out, that shows what happens when God is left out of the picture and we make the decisions for ourselves. And there's that disobedience that Roger was talking about. All right, so Judges chapter 3, verse 1 through 11. If uh, somebody would read that for us nice and loud, I'd appreciate that. That is all in Israel who had not, and their daughters, they All right, I should have told you there was a disclaimer. If you're going to read this, there are going to be some 10-cent words in there. You did good. Well, I, I should have that, that name's there four times in the text. And we'll talk about old Kushan here in a little while. Um, I want you to observe something that said there, in, and Robert did a good job of that. What does it mean that he left the people, the Canaanites, in the land to test Israel? I mean, if you approach that, sometimes people will do this with regard to God. They'll say, hey, and, and the example that we often give is, is the idea of Pharaoh, that God hardened his heart. Um, so the question is, does God reach into that Egyptian ruler's heart, manipulate it, push and move him in a certain direction so that he um, acts in defiance of the will of God? Is that how that happened? God had a sovereign, perfect will, right? He was going to do what was right in his own eyes, and it's perfect. It's, it's absolutely holy. And he knew the temperament of Pharaoh. He says, I'm going to show my glory through him. And so he knew by exercising the power of his will that Pharaoh was going to rebel against that. He was going to harden his heart against that. And depending on where you're reading throughout that account or looking back on that account, it says Pharaoh hardens his heart. Various events do that. God does that. All speaking of the same thing. So when we ask this question of why, why does the text say that God left these inhabitants in the land and furthermore to test them? Yeah, I think that's very key in what you said there, that God is not going to move all the obstacles out of the way. So let's think back to how do you get to where you are in the period of the judges anyway? Why are they in the spiritual predicament they're in? Go back to Judges chapter 1, go back to the uh, end of the book of Joshua, but especially Judges 1. Well, certainly that's going to be a perpetual problem for the, the, the people of Israel is they're going to want, and, and the people of God. And it's a struggle we have is to be like the people around us. But there's a more immediate issue here. Yes, sir, Dwight? That's a cer- yeah, that's, a, that's certainly an astute observation. Let's think about this in the sense of immediately what's taking place. Go ahead, Stephen. All right. What were they supposed to do? Annihilate them. If they obey what God says completely, who is left there for them to have to deal with? All right, and so in that sense, God left them there. In other words, God's not going to go behind them and do what they didn't do that He told them to do in the first place. And so they're there that God left them there in that God didn't come in and clean up their mess. 
He allows that to take place. Now he also says that he does... Yes, sir, Mike? Right. Right, and it won't be the last time. Yep. So th- that word, the, the Hebrew language, the, the words have elastic meaning. And so it, it certainly there can be a sense in which testing can mean to tempt. But the, the, the root idea is to prove the worth of something or someone, to test the metal, right? And so uh, to, to subject one to conditions or allow those to exist so that they will occur. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening with Abraham. That's what's happening here. Since they didn't do what God said to do in the first place, then what's going to be their character? Now, unfortunately, we know from reading through the period of the judges, it's not going to go very well uh, for them at all. So, uh, great thoughts. That's, that's exactly right. Um, in Judges here, when he leaves them in the land, he doesn't remove or exterminate them for Israel when they didn't do it. And the presence of the Canaanites in their promised land was a huge test. Um, to prove the quality of someone through adversity or hardship. It generally means to put to the test rather than to entice to do wrong. And I think that's what's happening in Judges chapter 3. So the question is, why the tests? And when we look through chapter 1, verse 1 through 11, the tests were to teach them. You notice in verse 1 and 2 it says that um, because they disobeyed, what's the resulting circumstances? What happens because of their disobedience? What does it say in verse 1 and 2? So what's the significance of that? So let's go back to Moses' generation. Do you remember when the spies are sent out to the land um, of Canaan to, to, to assess whether it's inhabitable? And they come back and the majority report is that they... Uh, it's not takeable. We're grasshoppers in their sight and our sight. They're fortified cities. There's giants in the land. All that is uh, being said. And as the result, our children are going to be praying, Numbers 14. And so is, we're not going to do it. And in fact, when God said, well, then you're going to wander for 40 years. Your carcasses are going to be slain in the wilderness. Uh, and uh, then they're ready to do it. And then God drives them off the, the hill and they can't go in. Um, do you remember that God through Moses says... The children that you're worried about, what's going to happen with them? The children that Moses' generation was worried about. They're going to go in. So what happens for 40 years? They're they're, they're camping for 40 years. They're they're toughening their hide. They have some battles before they actually get to the conquest period in which God is with them and they win these victories. So that generation learned how to be prepared for battle even as they're losing their lives in the wilderness. The next generation, Joshua's generation, they go in and they fight, starting in Jericho. The stronger south moved to the north and they they conquer and subdue that land through battles. Then that generation dies and God, through their disobedience, is hardening them, is providing them with the ability to be prepared for war. Does, does that strike you as, as what, was, what does that say about God? That the reason they're in this predicament is because they have sinned. But God says, I'm going to test you in order to teach you how to be able to fight just like your ancestors did. How did they get there? Through their sin. So what does this say about God? What about God's grace? What about God's power? Let me ask you a question. 
Are there instances in your life, and by the way, God would rather have had them to be perpetually faithful to them, uh, to Him, to perpetually put their trust in Him, and to not need to be ready for battle, but He knew they were going to stumble and fall, and, but that being the case, He wanted them to be ready, because what's going to happen after the period of the judges? You're going to have wars that are being fought in the United Kingdom and in the divided kingdom. Are there situations in your life where it would have been better for you not to have sinned, but because you did sin, that God taught you something that helped you later in your life? Sometimes people will talk about some sin struggles they had, and, and we can overdo that. We don't want to just be a perpetual testimonial. But because we made those sinful decisions, and it cost us in some way, does it put us in a better position to minister to some others who may be struggling in the same way? If we, yeah, that's right. If we put the focus on God and, and, and not, or glamorize that in some way, like the glory, the good old days back when I was, you know, willfully sinning. But God is allowing this sin issue, this disobedience, to be a way that He can use that to His good and His glory. Um, there was a good friend of mine uh, who always would say, uh, if you're going to be dumb, you better be tough. I don't know if you've ever heard that saying before, and God was saying, if you're going to make foolish choices, I'm going to toughen you up. And so these tests, he says, he leaves them in the land in order to teach them. Number two, these tests were also to try them. The nations were for the testing of Israel to know if they would obey his commands. And as we're going to see, not just in chapter 3, but as we go throughout the period of the judges, they're going to continue to fail the test. The Canaanites are going to live among them, and this coexistence that takes place is going to have an influence on them. You've heard the adages before about we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Um, we are to overcome this world, and it's either exerting an influence on us or we're exerting an influence on it. They put themselves in a precarious predicament by not exterminating them, as God had said to do. But now that they have found themselves here, they could exert a, a righteousness or they were going to be, have an ex, uh, unrighteousness exerted upon them. And so we see that play out in verse 6 and verse 7. Um, they intermarried with the natives, and this was a point that was made before. They learned their ways, verse 7. They forgot God and they served the gods of the land. And uh, the assessment of the writer of Judges is that this was evil in God's sight. And so the, these tests were to teach them, but also to try them to see what spiritual material they were made of. And every adversity, every struggle that we come up against spiritually in our lives is going to do one or the other. It's going to show that we come out of that fire refined or that it's going to be the undoing of us. And the tests were to temper them, verse 8 through 11. All right, somebody mentioned the cycle in Judges. It's going to repeat itself over and over again. And we've talked about that cycle. Look in verse 7 through 11. How is the cycle described for us there? Okay, what verse is that? All right, what does it say again? All right, so that's one point on this circle, right? They... The people do evil. They abandon God. They go back. So that's, that's number one. What happens next? God's anger is kindled. Verse 8. And then what happens? He lets their enemies overtake them. Verse 8. What's next? They cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Alright, verse 9 and 10. He sends a deliverer. And then verse 11. Alright, so they have rest. Alright, so... You know, when we were talking about that cycle and Andrew put up a chart there and um, I think Hiram did something similar 
We weren't just pulling that out of the air. You'll find the writer uh, demonstrating this over and again. And so here in this first part of the history of the period of the Judges, you're seeing that play out in real time. Isn't it interesting about this first deliverer that comes along? Who is it? Now, the first deliverer, that's the first oppressor. Cushan, uh, uh, Rithashan who is the double wickedness. That's what his name means. Somebody, some people believe that that is a nickname, that it's not a formal name given to him, uh, that because they let wickedness uh, infiltrate their lives and they gave themselves to wickedness, that God gave them double wickedness uh, as an oppression. How long does the oppression last? Eight years. The next one is going to go 18 years. It's interesting that it doesn't go so long. Let's get back to our guy. Who's the deliverer? He's, he's Caleb's nephew and son-in-law. Where do we first learn about Othniel? It's in Joshua, Joshua chapter 15. So Caleb's not just a nephew through Kenaz. He is a son-in-law because he's married to Aksa. And what did Aksa ask her dad? She says, you've given us this, but we also want this. It's kind of neat. It seems to me that Axa has learned faith and audacity from her father because he's 85 years old and he goes up to Joshua and he says, give me this mountain. I want to go up and fight the the, the greatest enemies that there are where they've got a, a defensible position up high. I'll go and take that even though I'm 85 years old. And here's Axa. The apple doesn't fall far, far from the tree. She says, you've given me De beer, but I want more. I want more. Can I have that? And uh, Othniel is one of the fighters. He's one of the warriors. When we talked last week in chapter 2, and we said, I think about verse 10, verse 11, that there arose another generation that knew not uh, Joshua, God, or the things that he had done um, in, the, in the period of time in which Joshua was leading. It's, it's not like, do you have it in your mind that the, the last old guy in Joshua's generation died and they fell off the spiritual cliff right then? It didn't work that way at all throughout the period of the Judges. I think someone made mention of this in one of our first two classes that you think about um, how in Samson's day, when things are really getting bad, the degradation is really setting in, and you look at Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, the, the parents, there seems to be some faith and some godliness taking place there. Of course, we remind ourselves that Ruth is living in the midst of the period of the Judges, and it's not just Ruth, it's Boaz. So I don't know the, of the, the totality of the sterling character or lack thereof on the part of Othniel, but he's a guy who can remember the battles that God won for them, and he comes out valiantly and he delivers them. Um, and so the oppression is not allowed to last very long there. Um, but I, I make mention of the fact that God tempers them through these tests that take place. God is going to counterbalance their disobedience with oppression so as to try to affect the right kind of response to them. He wants them to repent. God allowed the difficulty to come in order to get them to return to him. And even though the period of the judges is going to be filled with a lot of dark events, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that the major character that we see in the period of the judges is God. 
and God's faithfulness and God's long-suffering not to give up on the people throughout all these various oppressions. He doesn't give up on them. And even when he allows Cushan to come in and the, and the, the folks from the south to come in and oppress them, that God's doing that in order to try to, or is allowing that, to get them to come back to him. When you think about how God works in our lives today, you ever thought of that God allows opposition in your life to, to, to affect the same thing? Turn your Bibles real quick to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to look at verse 7 through 11. Hebrews 12, verse 7 through 11. And the writer of Hebrews says, It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we all had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Circumstances are a little different in Hebrews than in the period of the Judges. But the reminder there is is that God wants you to be holy. He's trying to bring about the fruit of righteousness in your life. And so when you think about some of the tests that come into your life, whether it's physical suffering or emotional trials or financial difficulties or relationship problems or temptation, on the surface they may look like a cause for you to question God and His goodness and His presence in the moment. But it can be a circumstance whereby God can bring you, draw you closer to Him and rely more on Him. And when it's sin that's at the center of the struggle... Perhaps the greatest blessing that can ever come is when we feel the adversity, the trial, the pushback of, of, of the events of life that can bring us to our needs and cause us to look up. God's at work, even as the people have gone so far away from Him, in order to try to restore and to repair the relationship. Or so it seems to me. Do we ever look at these things as tests? I, I, won't, I won't say who, but visiting with, with someone in this congregation and the number of the kind of tests that are going on in our lives at all time, but there's, there's a, a, a family that's going through a test. And it's incredible to watch, it's incredible to watch the, the faith response when there's so much uncertainty in the situation. To see them drawing closer to God as the pain even intensifies. And you may not be in one of those moments right now, but those aren't very far away ever. That there's a valley of life that comes and there's a decision to be made. Now the people in the period of the judges, they're bringing this on themselves. And it's a hole they've dug for themselves. They didn't have to be there, but they're there and God's drawing them back through that difficulty. So when these things happen, think of what they can teach us how they show what's inside of us, what should be there, what shouldn't be there, how they can soften us, how they can shape us into the image of Christ. We're reminded, as somebody said earlier, that God doesn't tempt us. James chapter 1 and verse 13 reminds us of that. But neither does He clear all the obstacles from our paths. Instead, He uses them if we let them in order to lead us to be obedient to Him. And we need the wisdom to let that be the outcome that we get from those trials, self-inflicted or otherwise. All right, so we have the tests of the people who remain in the land. 
and how God delivers them when they failed that first test. Many thoughts on verses 1 through 11 before we move on. All right, let's go to verses 12 through 20. Um, We have here uh, Ehud and uh, Eglon in verses 12 through 30. I want you to notice how it begins. Somebody read just verse 12 for us. All right, so there's an important uh, transitional statement that happens four times in the book of Judges. Um, And and it all is based on a statement that's first made in chapter 2 and verse 11. Chapter 2 and verse 11 says that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. When we get to chapter 3 and verse 12, this is the first time, and if you want to make note of this, the next time it happens is uh, about to occur in in the the, uh, deliverance of Deborah in chapter 4 and verse 1. It's going to happen again with Jephthah in chapter 10 and verse 6. It's going to happen again in the days of Samson in chapter 13 and verse 1 that lets us know that we have these, we do have the big cycle that's repeated over and over and over again with every deliverer that's mentioned for us whose exploits are specifically told us as these three are tonight. There's the rest, and then we find them right back where they were before. And so the writer says, and the children of Israel did evil again in the eyes of the Lord. It's characteristic of the entire period, 2.11, 3.12, here we go again, 4.1, here we go again, and then so forth down the line. What's the difference in just that statement and what's the significance of that word again? The children of Israel did evil again in the eyes of the Lord. How does that hit you? Okay. Okay, there was was a lack of learning what should have been learned. There was a lack of a a heart change that should have taken place. Yes, sir. That's a great great point. I'm going to hold that thought for just a couple of minutes. That, that generational point is a, is a very vital one. Very good. I don't know what do you read into the text there. I don't want to read more than is there. Disbelief? Anger? This is an inspired writer. Is he sharing the grief that God feels that this has happened before? You had this very strong oppression that's so great that the people cry out and they want deliverance. And, God is, and God's going to do it in some mighty ways. He's going to do it in this chapter in some mighty ways. We're not really told what happens with uh, Othniel to the degree we are in some of the later uh, deliverances that occur. Um, when we get to uh, what Ehud does with Eglon, it's uh, going to be pretty dramatic and it's going to lead to a huge victory. Uh, with, along with the Ephraimites over the, the Moabites there, uh, 10,000 killed, 10,000 thrown off. And I mean, I, I'm just, this is a violent period of time. Can you imagine seeing all of this unfold? That, the, the, that the, you've been oppressed, and now you, you have the upper hand, and you see the, uh, God's people uh, in Ehud's direction taking these 10,000 people and throwing them off the side of the mountain. I, I, I'm trying to imagine that happening with two or three people. But it's, it's a demonstration of God's uh, deliverance in the midst of all of that. Um, so why do they need another one? How could they ever fall again? And, and John Ross is, is right there. We'll say more about that. But let's talk about the characters involved here. We've got Eglon, the king of Moab. And just remind me, who are the, who are the Moabites? Who'd they come from? Lot. 
they escaped Sodom and Gomorrah only to create their own little minor version of the same thing, didn't they? The daughters getting drunk. And not only the Moabites, but one of the alliance nations here, the Ammonites, and for good measure, the Amalekites, all are in alliance, and they oppress the children of Israel. Um, and God said that they're going to be a thorn uh, in your side, the, the Ammonites and the Moabites, and for sure that's what takes place here. Uh, when, we, when we get to what's said in verse 13, it says that the, this alliance of the Moabites, Ammonites, and Amalekites go together, defeat Israel, and they take possession of the city of Palms. Anybody have a footnote there as to what the city of Palms is? Yeah, it's Jericho. Jericho, if you want to put Deuteronomy 34 and verse 3, I believe that's uh, the passage in which it is made reference to in that way. Anybody see any irony in that? When you think Jericho, what is Jericho the symbol of? Yeah, fallen walls. Victory. What kind of victory? It is. It's thorough. I mean, total except, I mean, it's total obedience except for Achan. What else? How else would you describe that? God did it all. God gave the victory. And except for Achan, and that's, that's only in what he does in the, the spoil taking, what about the Israelites? How would you describe their response? Because God asked them to do something that would have been very frightening and would take a lot of faith to do. Not taking weapons of war. They're obedient. They're obedient. God gives them the victory. What happens here? The city of Palms is taken from them. Why? They've forgotten God and they're disobedient. Yeah, you would think there's a pretty good lesson right there. All right, so God allows that to take place. Um, Eglon oppresses them for 18 years. I always wonder about this. They cry out for help in verse 14 and 15. How long would it take you? How long would you live with the oppression, the slavery, before you reached out and said, God, please help me? I, I would, looking back on this, I don't know, this is, is it the subtlety is that you drift away little by little. It's The oppression is just kind of encroaching and creeping on them. But at some point you realize we don't have the freedom, uh, this, we don't have the, the autonomy that we had before, but 18 years. And when they cry out, what happens? God sends them a deliverer. Um, what do we know about him? Verse 15. He's a southpaw. All right. For the, those of you who aren't baseball people, that's, he's left-handed. Or don't have a Bible open, I guess. It's right there. Left-handed. What else was said? Son of Gera. Ehud is. All right. What else about him? He's a Benjamite. So just if, to make note of this, there's an entire group of Benjamites who, who honed a skill and passed it down to their descendants about using their left hand in battle. In chapter 20 and verse 16, it says, Out of all these Benjamites, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. It's pretty good. First Chronicles 12 and verse 2 says that they were equipped with bows, using both the right hand and the left hand. They were ambidextrous to sling stones and to shoot arrows from the bow, and they were Saul's kinsmen from Benjamin. All right, so Ehud is one of these. Uh, elite forces, guys. Um, it's interesting that both names in e, uh, Eglon and Ehud have significance. A lot of times, 
Old Testament names do anyway. So we'll, li- we'll deal with Eglon first. Eglon's name would have sounded, would have had a different resonance to uh, a Semite, a Jew or a Hebrew speaker who heard the name uh, because of a couple of other names. Uh, it's a shortened form of Egal, which is a word for bull or calf. It would also uh, sound like Agal, which means round or rotund. And so he is, Eglon is literally a fattened calf. All right, so when we start to, to look at what happens, we're going to see how that's going to really match what occurs. How about the name Ehud? Anybody have a footnote there as to what his name means? It means, where is the majesty? And I think if that's the case, there's some irony here. That Israel was once glorious. They owned the land, but now they've been humbled because of their sin. Um, and the actual account is one of the more interesting and even darkly humorous uh, stories in all the Bible. My middle son has had a fascination with what he, he calls, uh, the you know, he talks about the Bible is not boring. Uh, and I remember when he was a little boy, the, his first favorite Bible story book, a story in the Bible, was what Ehud does to Eglon. Um, I mean, they were all boys anyway. I mean, it's just, this is, kids just don't, I mean, especially boys, don't know what kind of cool stories there are in the Bible. So you know what, when he comes in, what happens there, he's left-handed and he, and he stabs, and, you know, Dell's always been kind of fitness crazy, you know. He can't imagine this, but to Eglon's, he's a fattened calf. And so Ehud comes in there and he, he sticks the sword into Eglon's gut. I'm, I mean, I'm, I hope you're not squeamish. This is in the Bible there. He leaves the handle inside and the flesh closes on that. Depending on your version, he goes up to the chamber on the, the, the roof, goes inside. Some versions say to cool himself. Maybe the guards thought he was relieving himself. and So they're staying there until they're embarrassed or some versions say they're anxious and they go in and they find that he's, he's dead. In the meantime, uh, Ehud has escaped. Um, so it's kind of a, an interesting, neat story there, I guess. Um, so he slaughters the fattened calf, and Ehud goes up into the hill country of Ephraim. He rallies the Israelites for battle. He kills about 10,000 Moabites, and they're described as all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. And the victory leads the nation to nearly a century of peace. So we get to the question of how could they fall back into the same trap over and over again? Anybody here tonight over 80 years old? I don't think so. Anybody who let me ask it this way. This will make everybody feel good. Can how many can remember clearly an event that happened 80 years ago? All right. I didn't I didn't think so even if you were here. So don't we all feel good? Don't we all feel youthful now? Eighty years ago, in, in 1943, Benito Mussolini was arrested and the Allies defeated the Italians. They're out, of the, they're out of World War II. The Pentagon, at the time the world's largest office building, was completed uh, in 1943. The Manhattan Project, that's kind of big right now, isn't it? Uh, that secret project in Los Alamos started January 1st of 1943. Just like yesterday, huh? Has the, has society changed? Just, has society changed in 80 years? Sure. You don't even have to go back that far. Where mentalities and approaches and ideas, worldviews, 
have shifted and shaped how many new countries there are, how many regime changes there have been, how much evolution of thought there's been. In 80 years' time, they've got rest in the land, and they've forgotten, just as they did in that one generation, what God had done. So they're right back to where they were. And so it's a reminder to us, uh, as their sin led to judgment, uh, that's what happens. By the way, this is not to make fun of Eglon. Because if you want to describe Eglon, you would say he's described in Scripture as an obese, dim-witted, and easily flattered man. And his guards are equally dense. But you know what? Despite that fact, who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed? He's the oppressor. He's the guy in charge. He's the guy wielding the power. What does that say about Israel? And how their sin had reduced them. And really that's the idea here. Sin reduces us. It it removes us from our better self. It robs us. It depletes us. And that's certainly what it did there. It robs us of our potential and strength. It makes us of shell of what, what we were meant to be. It enslaves us to the most ridiculous and powerless things. God will deliver us from it, but we must turn away from whatever that is and trust ourselves to his will. Uh, for the sake of time, let me get to Shamgar in verse 31. Uh, it's a very a brief account. It's interesting and unique. Think about Othniel. He had a famous family tie, Caleb. Ehud had a unique anatomical feature. He was left-handed. What's Shamgar known for? He's known for his weapon, really. I mean, what he does with it. But he's got an ox goat in his hand. Um, Did you know that there's much more said, much more said, about the opposing rulers, about the oppression and the oppressors, and the operations of the other four of the first five judges of of Israel. Shamgar's going to be followed by Deborah, who's going to be followed by Gideon. And you look at some of those minor judges, I don't even know if we're going to spend any time talking about Tola and Jer and Ibzan and Elon and Abdon, uh, but they have as much said about them as Shamgar does. Here's what's said about him. After him, that is Ehud, came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat, and he also saved Israel. And you can add one other verse. That's chapter 5 and verse 6 in Deborah's song, when she says, In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, who's going to be a hero in our next story, the highways were deserted, and the travelers went by roundabout ways. I think there are some things we can learn from Shamgar. Number one, Shamgar was resourceful. He took what was in his hand and he used it. Think of anybody else that did that? Even in Judges. Samson, what's he going to take? Jawbone of a donkey. And he's going to deliver a great slaughter. There's others. If you want to write this down, uh, Adano, one of David's mighty men, we don't know what the weapon was, but he took that weapon and he killed a great number of the enemy. Eliezer, in the, in the very next part, in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 10, takes a sword and delivers a great victory. Abishai, with his spear, the, delivers a great victory for David in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 18. He takes what he has and he uses it for God. He's resourceful. That's what God wants us to do. He doesn't want to take what he's put in, you to take what he's put in somebody else's hand and you do something with it, but what he puts in your hand... You remember what, is he, what does he say to Moses in, in Exodus 4.2? What's in your hand? And what's amazing is what God does with the thing that he puts in our hand. He makes more out of it than we can make out of it ourselves. And so Shamgar takes an ox goad and he does that with it. Take inventory of your resources. Your money, your talents, your temperament, your personality, your intelligence. That's what's in your hand. 
Do what he did. Use it for God. He was also valiant. He killed 600 with an ox goad. Again, would, would you have liked it? I don't know. That seems pretty gory to me. But would you have liked to have been there to sing? You ever seen these big gladiator scenes? These big, these big, these big war movies that just make us feel, you know, you know if, especially if it's a war movie of our country, so you know, well with pride or whatever. Maybe it speaks to men more than it does the ladies in the class. But this guy's one after the other, winning victory after victory, six hundred times over. Incredible that he was able to do that. And of course he did that because of God. God is the one that delivers the judges, uh, Israel through the judges. God's behind the victory. But remember that God won the victory through the man. God is going to be the one who saves the soul. But how does God save the soul? Through the man and woman. How does God impact communities? Change the world? He could do it any way he wanted to, but he does it through us. And so he was valiant. But I also want you to notice... But not only was he valiant, but he was, he was useful. If you'll notice this with me, and we'll end with this, is that um, he saved Israel. He was a savior. That's what a, a judge is. He's a deliverer. He only gets a footnote in history, but what a legacy. There was a problem, and he worked with God to solve the problem. All right. We will look at Deborah and Barak next week. Thanks, guys, very much for your attention.